to Freshly Forever, a podcast that gives you fascinating insights week after week. Here's your host, Vai Kumar. Hey folks, our guest today is Dr. Jane Morgan. She is the Clinical Director, COVID-19 Task Force at Piedmont Healthcare here in Atlanta, Georgia. She's a cardiologist by background, well-known and recognized for spearheading early innovation and device development, leading robust clinical development programs to innovate scientific platforms and create novel compounds and devices. She is recognized for vetting new inventions and leading robust medical affairs, clinical and commercial programs to create scientific platforms, support novel compounds and devices, and develop and execute brand strategies. Without much ado, let's get on with the discussion with Dr. Jane Morgan on COVID-19 vaccinations. Hello, Dr. Morgan. Welcome to Freshly Forever. You know, the show is just, I think, so privileged and honored to have you as a guest. Thank you. I appreciate being here, Vi. Thanks for um, inviting me. Oh, absolutely. I think it's very critical and uh, important for the general public and the global audience to understand uh, how important it is to know about the COVID-19 vaccination and the need to uh, for potentially people to get vaccinated. So I think it's just such a privilege that you are able to spend time with us today to discuss this very important topic. So what family of viruses does the COVID-19 virus strain belong to, if we can start there? Um, So this is a family of coronaviruses. And so the uh, COVID-19 is the actual disease. And so when people are talking of COVID-19, that's the actual disease that's caused by the virus. Uh Virus is called SARS-CoV-2, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, coronavirus two. And that's the virus that if you contract it, you're at risk of developing the disease COVID-19. Okay. So how many COVID-19 vaccines are currently approved for use on patients? And has any other vaccine been developed in such a short time frame? So there are two vaccines that are here under emergency use authorization. They do not have FDA approval. And the reason for that is because we were in a pandemic, it was determined that we would take a look at the interim analysis data, meaning the data at the midpoint of the trials, Mm -hmm. and take a look at that data And that data looked very positive, very promising. And because of that, the vaccine was approved under emergency use authorization. What isn't completed in the trials is the follow-up. So all the patients completed enrolling and completed their both courses, both doses of the vaccine. But what we don't have the information on is the long-term follow-up. And that's why questions regarding immunity cannot be answered definitively because we haven't followed those patients out long enough to know how long you have immunity after receiving this vaccine. So it was approved under emergency use and not under FDA approval as they continue to have all of this data come in. 
So that relates to the efficacy of the vaccine and how long it stays effective in an individual, correct? Right. The efficacy, meaning how well it does what it's designed to do. So how how well it works. And in this case, the efficacy would be how well it protects you from contracting the SARS-CoV-2 virus and developing COVID-19. Okay, fantastic. So how long has work been done on coronavirus vaccine in the past? And how helpful was that research, you think, in the development of this COVID-19 vaccine? Right. So this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 virus, is so named number two because we've seen this virus before. Mm-hmm. We saw it in 2003 with the first SARS outbreak, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Since that time, we've completed all of the preclinical work, all of the bench work research, We've identified the spike protein as the key target that transfers virus. So that's the transmissibility agent. And we've also identified the entire genomic sequence of the virus, all 30,000 base pairs identified and analyzed. All of that was done in those 17 years. And so when we um, had our first confirmed case of COVID-19 here on our shores in the United States. Mm -hmm. We had 17 years of data and research and work upon which to rely such that we could begin to quickly develop these vaccines. And that's probably why something so soon has even been possible in the first place, correct? That's one of the reasons. The other, a second reason is that it was also determined that we could accelerate the vaccine development process. Usually that takes place in three phases, phase one, phase two, phase three. Mm -hmm. Patients are enrolled in a phase one, which is a safety data, safety uh, trial. And then that trial is completed. All of the data is analyzed and then it's determined you go to stage two. So all of these things take a long time. What we decided to do this time was overlap them. So we started phase two before phase one ended, again, looking at that interim analysis data, what does it look like at the at the midway point? And then the same thing, we began phase three before phase two started and then received emergency use authorization ahead of completing all of the trials, which is why we don't have FDA. So that entire development process was accelerated because the data looked so good. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing are resources. We were in a pandemic. And suddenly resources uh, became available, meaning money and funding suddenly became available as we began to push to protect the public. And when funding becomes available, then you can pull people from other projects. You can focus on this one within your company. You can hire additional people. You can open more study sites, enroll patients more quickly. So complete your trial more quickly. So all of these things can be accelerated once funding becomes unlimited. Oh, that I think is going to help, um, you know, like boost the confidence in so many people. That's a great perspective, Dr. Morgan. So who is the right candidate to receive this COVID-19 vaccine? So Moderna and Pfizer both have vaccines currently under emergency use authorization. They are both approved for adults 
all adults ages 18 and older. The Pfizer vaccine is also approved for 16 and 17 year olds. So these are this is so this is the entire population and this is where we are now. Okay. So is it necessary for everyone in this category to consider getting a COVID-19 vaccine? What would be the benefit? And I know there are uh, multiple doses in those vaccines. So are both both doses necessary? I think there's been some speculation and some theory in certain places or certain uh, uh, opinions that, okay, maybe one dose may be effective or whatever that is. Right. The clinical trials were all done on two doses. So all the data that we have, the completed data that we have is based on two doses. Pfizer's vaccines are given at 21 days apart between doses one and two. And the Moderna vaccine is given at 28 days apart between doses one and two. The Pfizer vaccine requires an additional week after the second dose to confer complete immunity and protection. And the Moderna vaccine requires two weeks after the final dose to confer complete immunity or protection. So if you add those up, you see that the entire process for Pfizer is four weeks and the entire process for Moderna is six weeks. So the Pfizer vaccine actually, um, you can actually reach full immunity with the Pfizer vaccine in a two week period that's shorter than the Moderna vaccine. That being said, the efficacy of both of the vaccines, meaning how well they do what they are intended to do, which is to protect you from COVID-19, is essentially the same at 94.5% and 95%. And that is excellent. Our flu vaccines are generally only around 50%. So I would encourage you know all of your viewers and all of your listeners, whatever vaccine they're offered, whatever vaccine you have access to, please utilize that vaccine. They both are excellent and the differences in them um, are just minuscule. That's a great message right there. And when you compared uh, how the percentage effectiveness of the flu shot versus this, I think this seems like a phenomenally positive number. And that's again, that's a great thing as well. So for someone who feels they are taking precautionary measures regarding the virus by say, wearing a mask or following social distancing. What is your message, Dr. Morgan, as far as emphasizing the need for COVID-19 vaccination? Right. So if you receive the vaccination or you're scheduled to receive it or you've already received it, you still need to practice um, public health measures. You still need to wear masks. You still need to wash your hands very thoroughly you still need to practice social distancing. The reason for this is you can still be a carrier of the virus. You can carry the virus in your nose or in your pharynx, in your throat. And even though you're fully immunized and you will not be ill from it, you can pass it on to others and make others ill. So we have to continue to wear these masks, continue to practice social distancing, continue to wash our hands until we can get the entire population in the United States up to our herd immunity, which is generally over 80%. Herd immunity meaning that the population has either reached immunity naturally, meaning you've had the disease and now you have antibodies, natural antibodies, 
or you've reached immunity via vaccination. So that's okay. where we are with that. Okay, great. So that explains that people still cannot be careless and say, oh, I got vaccinated. Let me not wear a mask or follow social distancing. So I Absolutely. think- Absolutely. Yeah, that's you- That's a great point too. That is a great point that you cannot be careless with that. Mm-hmm. You must continue. That's right. Okay. So what is the underlying science in a nutshell or basis behind these vaccines getting developed all over the world? I know we are talking Pfizer and Moderna in the context of the United States. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, the AstraZeneca, if I believe. And there's uh, so many other things, say, in Asia as well that has come up. So right. are every, uh, say, are the uh, people that are developing it following kind of like the same premise or what is the underlying science? Right. So what you're talking about are sort of the different platforms that vaccines are developed. And so when we take a look at the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, these are messenger RNA vaccines. And think of them as um, proteins that that have a code. Mm -hmm. And that code creates the virus in this in this case, the spike protein virus that then stimulates your body to develop an immune response such that you can be protected. That's how messenger RNA vaccines work. They are not DNA. They don't, you know, change your DNA makeup or your genetic code. They actually create a code that makes these proteins that then the body recognizes and mounts the immune response. And then messenger RNA actually uh, degrades and and leaves your body. So the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are both messenger RNA vaccines. If we look at AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, they're on a different platform. These are called viral vectors. Mm -hmm. What they are doing is that they are using a small virus called an adenovirus to transport the protein into the body, such that the protein then recognizes it and mounts that response. And then the other uh, two that are coming aboard, on board shortly perhaps, um, are the Sanofi and Novavax, which also are using a relatively new technology in protein. So all six of these companies are using three new types of immunization methods that are being introduced into our society um, in, you know, as we herald the, the continued advancement of medicine. So we've been giving live attenuated viruses for a while or killed viruses. And that's what you're probably familiar with, with measles, mumps, polio, but this mm-hmm. is new technology. Those previous viruses where, you know, we may have all been immunized as children, are actually the actual virus in such a weakened form that it's not strong enough to um, make us sick, but there's enough of it that your body recognizes it and mounts that immune response. And that's how you become immune to it. But you always have a risk of developing the disease from these live attenuated viruses. With this new technology, these three new platforms, the first of which will be messenger RNA vaccines, you do not have a risk of developing disease from these new technologies. Okay. So in other words, those are not live vaccines. Is that like a correct understanding? Yes. Okay. And 
So is it ideal then for vulnerable or immunocompromised patients to take it? I know I've heard I myself am immunocompromised with my IBD status. And so is this ideal for people with immunocompromised status to take it? Right. So I think what, you know, and a couple of things. One, we certainly want people with comorbidities, meaning people who have other types of medical conditions that make you more susceptible to also take these vaccines. And that would include people who have some degree of immunocompromise. These are all, you know, inflammatory bowel disease is just one, a few spectra of diseases. So what I would say is talk with your doctor about that. And then between the two of you, make a decision. But certainly you're at risk and you need to confer, have some degree of uh, protection. That protection could come if enough Americans are immunized, then you can benefit from herd immunity without actually receiving the vaccine. But that means that enough other Americans and people around you in your society, in your community, in your village, village meaning, you know, your friends and things um, have to have received the vaccine or have had the disease and have immunity. Okay. So again, a great point and a fantastic uh, aspect that you touched upon I think it's very important uh, what you and I are trying to put out here is information uh, that is very beneficial to the common man. But at the same time, on a case-by-case basis, it's important for people to consult with their physician and then uh, take the measured and right steps that are needed for their benefit. And uh, that's a great thing you touched upon. Uh, So what about pregnant women or women after childbirth? Has there been any recommendations yet for people in that category? And what about children? Mm -hmm. So in the both Moderna and Pfizer trials, um, pregnancy was an exclusion criteria. So if you were pregnant, you were not allowed to be enrolled into the trials. Mm -hmm. That being said, there were 13 unintended pregnancies that occurred in the Moderna trial and 23 unintended pregnancies that occurred in the Pfizer trial. All of those pregnancies are being followed out to full-term birth. And so far, we've seen no indications and no effects that there's any impact on the fetus or the unborn child to date. Remember though, these were unintended pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Pregnancy was an exclusion criteria. However, the pregnancies occurred and it gives us an opportunity to gather more information. So far, we don't see anything. And I believe, and you can check with your physician, that the recommendation is for pregnant women as well to receive the vaccine. Okay. And do we know when we can get to a better comfort level as far as knowing more answers uh, regarding this category of patients, like say pregnant women or women after childbirth? Right. Pregnant women, lactating women, the only information we have are those that cluster of women who became pregnant unintentionally during the trial. Mm-hmm. And so those are that's the cluster that we will follow and begin to get information. But again, because this is under emergency use authorization, let's not forget, it does not have FDA approval, meaning that all of the data is not complete. So with incomplete data, this is yet another cohort where the data is incomplete and we'll be following it in real time. 
Okay. And then to answer the second part of your question about children, 16 and 17 year olds were included in the Pfizer trial. What will happen and what's happening now is something called bridging down. When you bridge down, it means that you began to roll in younger age groups after you've demonstrated safety primarily and efficacy in the adult population. You then bridge down. So you don't have to complete all of the trials, but you do need to do the efficacy trial. Um, Moderna and Pfizer, generally when you do these bridging down trials, it goes in increments of three, three years. So 15 to 18 years old will be the first cohort, 12 to 15 will be the next cohort, nine to 12, six to nine, three to six, that type of thing. Moderna and Pfizer are both looking at the 12 to 18 year old demographic. And generally as a rule of thumb, it's not always true, the younger you go in the demographic, the younger the, the patient that you're seeking, the more difficult it is to enroll them. And you can imagine, you know, why as children become younger, they're mm -hmm. more vulnerable. Parents don't want them to be um, involved in trials. And so what we're looking at now is that 12 to 18 year old um, age range in both Pfizer and Moderna trials. Okay. And I think uh, right there, there's also perhaps an underlying message that it's important then for people around those children or people around uh, children of that age group to get vaccinated. That way, you know, they protect the rest of the family. So you talked about the village. And I think right there is, uh, you know, that cohort. Mm -hmm. So do these vaccines potentially offer benefit um, against this new uh, strain of virus that is currently rampant, say the UK strain, or there's again a US strain, and they're also talking about various other strains. Do mm. we know anything as yet on these uh, variants? Right, so Pfizer tested uh, its vaccine on a couple of those variants and it had great efficacy. Um, I think one of the things that we should think about when we talk about strains or mutations, um, viruses mutate frequently. And so even this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has mutated over 2,500 times already, mm -hmm. just, this, just since it's been introduced. We have not traced all of those variants, all of those strains. So even though the UK and South Africa may have identified a couple of strains, we really don't know what the other thousands of strains have demonstrated. The other thing that we need to think about is there are 30,000 base pairs in this virus. When you have a mutation, and mutations are generally anywhere between two and nine base pairs long, so they're, they're really not big enough to uh, really substantially impact the virus. And generally, as a rule of thumb in science, when you're having mutations, it often weakens the virus or weakens the bacteria. Now, obviously there are courses where, you know, mutations uh, create, you know, drug resistance and other issues that are, are difficult, but in totality, in thousands of mutations, mm -hmm. the majority of them um, are not deleterious. So when we look at these, what we're seeing in these mutations is that they're not more virulent and they don't cause more severe disease, but they're more infectious. 
So if you are, are, if you come in contact with someone with this strain, you are much more likely to also catch it. It's more contagious. The reason that it's also more deadly is that if it's more contagious, it can then infect more people. So now the volume of people who are infected is larger. Therefore, the volume of disease is going to be larger. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't change the course of disease in anyone. But it's created this large volume, these increasing numbers. And because it's more infectious and more contagious, it becomes a predominant strain in the area because it's more successful in transmitting itself. Oh, yes. And so again, there again, the need to emphasize on wearing a mask, social distancing, following hygiene protocols, all of that become once again, highly significant. Back in a moment with our guest on Freshly Forever. So what exactly do you think is a good method of ensuring this COVID-19 diagnosis? Is it the PCR test or the antibody test? Well, you know, the PCR test is, um, you know, it is, is, is the one where we're getting more definitive information and it has a higher sensitivity. And so I think that's the one that we use as a backup, mm-hmm. as the, as the double check. And so I think this is the one that gives you the most information. Okay. How prepared or educated uh, at this point is the medical community in dealing with any adversity, any reactions from, uh, say, the vaccination or anything as such? So the most common side effects from the vaccine um, are very similar to the flu. You can have uh, pain, stiffness, swelling um, at your injection site. Uh, which generally generally would last 24 to 72 hours. You can have nausea, vomiting, headaches, fever, chills, myalgias, meaning muscle pains. These are all very common side effects that you also can receive with the flu vaccine. There are a host of unusual side effects that have occurred at all as well that have been noted in the trial. For instance, Bell's palsy, which is a paralysis of one side of the face, which can be transient. Um, appendicitis was noted um, in seven people, including people in the placebo group, meaning they developed appendicitis, but they didn't actually get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we still count those. And so it probably will be that the companies will take a closer look at Bell's palsy and appendicitis. Bell's palsy, I think the numbers were four um, out of you know 30,000 people. So that's an incredibly small number. And again, the Bell's palsy also occurred in the placebo group. I think we should concern ourselves with what the most common side effects are. And if you experience those side effects, think about it in terms of your body now is revving itself up, is moving those ribosomes, is developing an immunologic reaction. It's, it's preparing to protect you. That's really what you're feeling. And that manifests to different degrees in different people. The most common time to experience the side effects will be after your second dose. Additionally, if you're over 55 years of age for Mm -hmm. Pfizer and over 65 years of age for Moderna, you are less likely to experience side effects. So age helps you. Mm -hmm. It provides a protection 
um, from uh, experiencing side effects. So the older you are, the data showed that your side effects were less than younger populations. That's great news for the senior population, Dr. Morgan. So um, is this vaccine then being tried as a method of containment or is it meant to eradicate the virus? Do we have any data on that? So, you know, I don't think anyone's talking about eradication um, mm-hmm. at this point. And, and certainly, um, if, you know, to get to eradication, we are, we are a long way from that. Let's just put it that way. Because okay. eradication would mean not only the U.S., it would really mean worldwide. So we are really nowhere near that. However, we are looking to contain it such that we can return to a semblance of normalcy, sitting in movie theaters again, um, you know, that going to a, a supermarket without a mask on, uh, going to family birthday parties, enjoying Thanksgiving, you know, a semblance of what life was like. We are looking to try to return the public back to a normal life where we're not as sequestered and we have a little bit more freedom. And speaking of that, you know, people often ask me, you know, what is the quickest way for me to be able to stop wearing my mask? I'm tired of wearing it or I've never worn it because I don't believe in it. I don't want to wear it. But, you know, I'm tired of living like this. Mm -hmm. So I will tell you and your listeners and your viewers, the quickest way to stop wearing the mask is to start wearing the mask. If you can start wearing it, the quicker you start wearing it, the quicker you can stop wearing it. Mm -hmm. So those two go hand in hand. Oh, that's uh, a highly, highly impactful message you presented there. And so um, we still, I know you pointed out even earlier that uh, we still need to study how long this might be effective further to getting vaccinated. But uh, what is your message to folks that are skeptical about vaccinations in general and the COVID-19 vaccine in particular. And I know there are even frontline healthcare workers that have not perhaps taken advantage of them being offered uh, the first pass at this in terms of you right. know them getting vaccinated first. Right. So what is your message to them? And so I think, you know, the part of the hesitancy is the rapidity with which it appears that the vaccine was developed. And so I think it's important to get that messaging out that this vaccine is based on almost two decades of research between Mm -hmm. the two SARS outbreaks. In addition, we learned a lot in 2009 with the MERS outbreak, the Middle Eastern um, um, virus, that um, respiratory virus that came out. And we, we were not as impacted with that one because that one was off of our shores. But it was actually significant and substantial. And we learned a lot about that virus as well. So there is a huge amount of data and almost two decades of time and research that came into developing the vaccine. What most people see is the vaccine arrived. You know, I'm sorry that the, that, that, you know, the virus arrived and suddenly we had a vaccine. That, and that's not, that's not true. You know, behind the scenes, there's 17 years of work going on. And when the virus arrived, a great deal of preparation and a great deal of knowledge had been acquired in that time frame. 
So that gives me so much comfort and uh, I just wanted to certainly share uh, this comfort that I feel um, when I first heard you uh, talk about these factors um, on a different show. And uh, that's uh, precisely why I wanted to get this messaging out to uh, the global audience on this show, Freshly Forever as well. So when can general population hope to receive the vaccine and I know you are clinical director, COVID-19 task force at Piedmont Health uh, Healthcare. So have you guys started doing it um, at Piedmont? So we are, we are following the guidelines that are coming from uh, the governor's office and from uh, the Department of Public Health. And all the states are doing that as we receive our supplies. And so we started with um, our frontline workers. So these are the people who are uh, directly involved in the care of COVID patients, the anesthesiologists who are intubating them, the pulmonologists, the ICU doctors, the emergency room physicians, all the nurses and PAs, including environmental uh, staff who have to clean these infected rooms um, after each patient. These are all our frontline workers who see and have direct contact with infected patients. Those people went first. In addition to that, that's, that's within the hospital. Outside the hospital, those people in long-term care facilities, nursing homes, and the people who work there also were all uh, front-lined. Mm-hmm. We went to the second level. These were first responders, police officers, firemen, paramedics, people who respond um, to emergencies. But it also included people in research, people in labs, people handling specimens. All of those people came in at the, at the second level. And where we are now is this third level is we're looking at everybody who's over the age of 65 years of age um, and starting to roll them in. And so it's going in a sequential stepwise fashion. I think you can get out to the general public, um, you know, hopefully by early summer. The reason I say that, and it might be sooner, is on January 21st, Uh, Johnson & Johnson will be taking its data before the FDA seeking emergency use authorization. And if they receive that EUA and Johnson & Johnson is a single dose vaccine, we will then have a third company that can produce vaccine um, and uh, bring it to the market. So we will see. Okay, fantastic. And I know you have definitely got your first dose. Have you got your second also? And how have you felt post-vaccination? I received the Moderna vaccine. I received my first dose. I had stiffness and a little soreness in my right deltoid. That's my right upper arm where I received the injection. I am right dominant as well. So I generally prefer to have all of my inoculations on the right side because I will use that side more and Mm -hmm. move it around. Um, That really abated, um, resolved within 24 hours. And there's really been nothing else, no fever, chills, nausea, vomiting, my algaes, headache, nothing I've felt normally. Um, I'm a Pilates instructor. I've been teaching my classes. We've had rigorous sessions. So my life has been uh, normal with the exception of, you know, I'm sequestered mostly at home. Everybody's still working from home. You're not out. Everyone's wearing masks. And that's why I, I got vaccinated. It's not only for me, but it's for you as well because all of us have to work together to restore our community back to some semblance of normalcy. Oh, I'm sure with help from 
you and people like you that are propagating such great messaging, I think everyone will definitely feel positive. And I really hope this brings about this conversation brings about a huge change and impact in people and definitely a reminder for everyone to consult with their physician as well regarding their case-to-case basis. And I do want to let the listeners know that uh, we certainly would uh, like to have your time again to uh, tap into your expertise in cardiology, your Pilates. You are like, you have a very minimum at the barest. You have 17 certifications in Pilates that I know of. And so <laughs> I really... Know? How did you know that? Oh, oh, that, that was based on my uh, research about oh my you goodness. because... When that I first saw you, Most people don't know that. <laughs> yeah, when I first saw you uh, on the CNN show, and then right there, when based on the messaging that you put out, you know, when I decided my listeners can benefit from your expertise, I right. figured, okay, let me just try to get more and more inputs about her. And then I definitely want to bring you back on the show. And uh, mm-hmm. with your permission, I'm going to include your Instagram handle for the Pilates uh, oh, sure. uh, thing <laughs> on my show notes. And uh, we'll start from there and we'll definitely get you back on the show whenever you have some time and uh, mm-hmm. to talk about cardiology, Pilates and whatnot. Yes. So <laughs> it thank- all goes hand in hand. I, I, I focus you know, both uh, within my career and outside of my career on health and, and how we want to live our lives and how we can live our, our, our best lives and our healthier lives together. And I, I consider my, my uh, Pilates a village and a community as well. Everybody who joins, we're part of that community and we encourage each other and, and move forward to live a healthier, we all want to live a healthier and, and responsible life. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. And, uh, you know, your dedication and service is much appreciated. And uh, please continue to uh, do the great work that you do for the community. And thank you so much, Dr. Morgan. Such a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks. Bye. See you. Bye. Bye Bye now. Thank you. Before I sign off, folks, I'd like to remind you to keep that feedback coming. I'm just so thrilled to see those every single time. And uh, be sure to rate the podcast and follow the podcast at Fresh Leaf Forever on Instagram, at Fresh Leaf Forever One on Twitter. The Facebook page is Fresh Leaf Forever, and the website is www.freshleafforever.com. And that's one word. I'll see you back again next week with another interesting guest and another interesting topic. Until then, it's Vi saying bye-bye for now.